I want to encourage you to turn to uh, Philippians chapter, chapter 3, and we're going to continue in our series in Philippians this morning. I want to talk this morning about taking the step to identify with Jesus in practice. Now, I want to ask, how many of you have a jersey with a professional athlete's name on the back? Some of you do. Some of you do. Now, what are you doing when you put that jersey on with that name on? Well, you're, you're trying to show your identification with the team and show your identification with your hero on that team. I googled um, most uh, popular jerseys, and in basketball, you can, you can kind of guess what they are, these three guys. And I will tell you that, that Westbrook and, and our Thunder, they're on there as well, but these, these are the top three. Kobe still, is still you know, right up there, even though he's, he's retired. Um, you may have had one of their jerseys. People don't like Golden State anymore, do they? Because, you know, they took our guy. But, um, <laughs> but uh, if you uh, go to any airport in Dallas, you'll see something like this. Dallas Cowboys. It's everything Dallas Cowboys. And it used to be Tony Romo had the top T-shirt, uh, top jersey. But now, you know, obviously it's Prescott and, and Zeke Elliott and, and a number of others. Da- the Dallas Cowboys have the most shirts in the top ten. Uh, of all NFL jerseys. And if you want to know who it is in 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 National League Baseball, it's Bryant, Rizzo, and Schwarber for sure. Now, that raises a question. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? I mean, you who have these shirts, you're not going to play Major League Baseball, and you're you're not going to hit like Schwarber. You're not going to pass like an NFL quarterback. Why do we wear these things? Why, why, do we, why do we do this? And you'd never see this back in the 1950s. Like, look back in the 1950s. This is what people wore to professional games. Yes, that is Jimmy Stewart, the actor there. That, 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 that is him. This is what people wore to professional games. They, they had suits and ties on. This is what people wear today. Not quite as formal as, as it used to be. What, what, what happened? What changed? Well, interestingly, there's a, an historical change. This little ad showed up in 1971 on September 11th, custom order, your choice of jersey, 10.50 on up. Uh, there are hundreds of dollars now. So there are sports historians who date our love for jerseys to that ad that occurred and sporting news in 1971. So there was a, there was a psychologist who, who asked the question about, you know, that's, that's the ad, but why did it take off? And the psychologist says, you know, all of us want to identify with a story. And we want to be joined with others who identify with that story. Um, did OU have a pretty good story this year in football? Yeah. Did OSU have a pretty good story in football this year? Yeah. So depending upon what kind of fan you are, you want to identify with that story by wearing the jersey. But you don't want to be like everybody wearing the jersey. You want to have your favorite player on the back, you know? So there's unity with the team, and there's diversity with the guy you identify with on the team. 
And that causes people to feel together, excited, when they come into that stadium. Now, I want you to think about this uh, from the level of your faith in Christ. What God is going to, what Paul's going to say in the book of Philippians is that our citizenship is in heaven. He's going to say that in Philippians 3.20. Not, not the passage we look at today, but he's going to say that in 3.20. And the idea is that we who are followers of Christ are part of a really, really epic story. Not just the story of a team battling it out for the championship of the season or the Super Bowl or the MLB champ, or World Series, whatever. This is the epic story of all stories. And who's our, who's our hero in that epic story? Our hero is Jesus. What Paul is going to do in this section of Philippians, Philippians 3, 1 through 8, is going to tell us, identify with Jesus. Not just in principle, but in practice. Identify with him not just theoretically, but in your daily walk with him. Identify with him. The idea is that you're part of, you're part of his kingdom reign. That, that's already begun for you right now. You're part of his big story that's already begun for you right now. Identify with him, not just in principle, but in practice. And Paul's going to outline some steps for this, very concrete steps. And step one is this, feel the weight feel the weight of this decision to identify with Jesus. Shifting your identity to Jesus in practice, Paul is going to say, is a big decision. Here's what he says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, to see the, for you to see the weight of this decision, I want to get very technical about these three verses for a moment. Verses 2 and 3 are crafted in a wonderfully creative way. Right smack in the middle of these two verses, Paul makes a statement about our identity. He says, we are the true circumcision. We're the ones who are truly circumcised. That is a statement about your identity as a follower of Christ. Now, that sounds really weird, okay? Like, like how does that affect me for my identity in Christ? Well, let me, here's, here's some background on this. When you were circumcised in the Old Testament, it was a mark of identity on your body that marked you out as being identified with Israel. Now, we think that may, might be kind of strange because um, we have tattoos, we have piercings, we have hairstyles, we have glasses that we can put on, we have all these things we can do to mark out our identity. We have logos, North Face, Arcteryx, under armor. We, we can choose to identify in a lot of different ways. This mark of identity, though, circumcision, was a very intimate mark. It was a very personal mark. To receive this meant you were included in God's covenant. It means you were identified with the God who made the covenant. It meant that you were part of God's covenant community. 
And you think, okay, so that, but that's still, that, that's still kind, of, kind of removed from what I encounter. So let me take this further. To receive circumcision as an Israelite meant, literally, I am going to bring children into the world who are part of God's covenant. It meant I'm going to envision God multiplying those children so that the knowledge of God is spread around the world. What it meant is that my most intimate member of my body is going to be marked and that marking shows that my entire body is marked out and destined for God. I mean, I mean in a lot of ways, our sexuality is a gateway into the deepest part of ourselves. And God is making an identifying mark on that area of our body that's the gateway into the deepest part of, our, of ourselves. So that mark was a mark of identity. Now here's what happens in the New Testament. In the New Testament, in Christ, it's as if God says, I'm circumcising your heart. Your heart, metaphorically. So that the literal circumcision in the, in, in the, in the Old Testament is viewed as a metaphorical circumcision of our heart in the New Testament, our heart is the deepest part of ourselves. It's the place where we make choices. Our heart is the place where our will resides. And in Christ, God has circumcised our heart, marking out the deepest part of ourselves for God. What Paul is saying is that you are the true circumcision, you who are in Christ. Your identity has been forever marked out as being in Christ, in God. So God has identified you with his covenant community. God has brought you into his epic story. God has brought you into a place where you're fully identified with Jesus. You are now the true circumcision, fully identified with the Son of God. Now, that's easy to say in principle, but it is very hard to live out in practice. And that's why in verses 2 and 3, Paul shows that we have to make choices. So Paul marks out two opposite choices. Choice number one is that we can identify with the world. And notice Paul's three commands. Look out, look out, look out. Now, when I was preparing this, I thought, when's the last time I said something like that? And I can tell you right, right where it was. We were in downtown Edmonds, not Oklahoma, but Edmonds, Washington, visiting my grandkids. And I'm walking with my grandson who is walking toward the intersection. And three times I said, watch out, stop, watch out. What Paul's doing in these words, he's using the language of emergency. What he's saying to you as a follower of Jesus is this, look out. For that identity that is not who you are. Watch out that you don't derive your identity from a false counterfeit source. You're the true circumcision. Look out. And he uses three very derogatory words. He says, dog, look out for dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for the mutilators. He's taking us from, from the bad, the dogs, to the very worst, which are 
the mutilators. Now I need to pause for a moment and just say, when he talks about dogs, he's not talking about the kind of dogs that we love on the left of the screens. We had a golden retriever when I was growing up named Bear. I just loved that dog. He's not talking about dogs like that. He's talking about the dogs on the right, which in the ancient world were pretty gross. They were wild. They were feral dogs. They would eat scraps of meat. They would devour human bodies that died by the side of the road. They were disgusting animals. Those are the kind of dogs that he's talking about, those dogs in the ancient world. And what he's saying about the so-called dogs is that these dogs were people who demanded that the Christians release their identity on Christ and embrace an identity that was not Christ in religious ritual. So these dogs would nip at your heel all the time and say, you better do this, you better not do that, you better do this, God's not going to love you if you do that, importing a spirit of religion into the situation in the city of Philippi. Now, dogs in our day could represent any philosophy that moves you away from Christ. It could be a philosophy of materialism. It could be a philosophy of substance abuse. It could be a philosophy of power and control. It could be a philosophy of success at any price. It could be a philosophy of sensual pressure. It could be a philosophy of fear that leads to anxiety. The dogs represent anything that would move you away from Jesus so that you get your identity in something that's not Jesus. That's the dogs. And so um, the first command is, look out, look out, look out. Because it's very easy for your identity to be moved away from Jesus. Um, the command to choose the different thing is not, is not explicit, but it's implicit. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So, here's your identity in the middle, that chart in the middle. Your identity is true circumcision. One alternative is to identify with the world in practice. The other alternative is to be immersed in the triune God in practice. Now, when he says we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, we got two members of the Trinity, and put no confidence in the flesh is a very veiled, implied reference to God the Father who has no, no physical body. He's spirit. What Paul is, is saying is, look, you, you can either be over here identifying with the world, getting your identity here, or you can be over here identifying with the triune God, immersed in his love. Those are the two choices. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to make the choice in practice to identify and be immersed in the person of the triune God. Well, what's going to motivate us to, uh, to, to do this? What motivates us to do this? Well, we go back to chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Paul is indicating that there is this culture of joy that makes it easy or easier 
to resist the identity of the world and to embrace our identity within the triune God, a culture, a culture of joy. If we're going to live out who we really are, we, we need to embrace that culture of joy. Remember several weeks ago, Josh McNall uh, put a, a glass up on the screens and asked you to say, is that glass half empty or is it half full? And he talked about the alternatives of pessimism versus optimism. Now, you can, you can move in one of those two directions. Joy is different than both. Joy is the ability to be connected relationally to God. And no matter what's going on around you, you know you're okay, you know you're safe, because you know that God is undergirding you with his love and his grace. That's joy. And so when we embrace a mindset of joy, it makes it a lot easier to reject the identity of the world and to embrace inclusion into the triune God. Because if I don't have joy, I'm feeling entitled. Like, doggone it, this isn't working right. I deserve better. I can't, I can't believe I don't have what I deserve. I've, I've kind of been, been messed around by this group over here. Is there any joy in that kind of cynical attitude? No, no. True joy in God says, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with this trial and that trial, but I'm good, I'm good. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. I'm resting in what I need in this moment right now. Joy is the inner attitude that makes it easier to move away from identifying with the world and move toward identifying with who we really are in the triune God. To have joy means I look at the world with a God-enchanted point of view and I see him in every place and I choose to identify with him. So let me uh, put, put this together. To identify with Jesus in practice means we understand we are already the true circumcision. We're already identified with him and we make the choice to do this in practice. So um, my friend Jeff Grisham recommended this book to me called The Way of the Heart. It's a short book, 96 pages long, and here's what Nowen says. Our life is full of brokenness, broken relationships, broken promises, broken expectations. How can we live with that brokenness without becoming bitter and resentful except by returning again and again to God's faithful presence in our lives? That's the joy that leads us away from identity in the world and toward living out that true identity that we have in Christ and being immersed in the triune God. So we begin by feeling the weight of this decision. It's definitely a choice. Now, the next thing that happens is we take an inventory. We take an inventory. If we're going to identify with Jesus in practice, we need to fearlessly assess from where do I currently derive my identity that's not Jesus. Where do, where do, I, where do I do that? Cindy and I have been immersed in the 12-step recovery world for the past 13 years when we started CR here at Grace Community Church. 
I've said many, many times, it has been a game changer in terms of our marriage and our family. But we have realized over and over again that the hardest step to do is step four. Step four says we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. The step four would have been a lot easier if it was like a, we just made a moral inventory. But they had to include searching and fearless into the thing. Because when you make a moral inventory, the thing that's so easy is for you to be in denial about the sins and the shortcomings that are in your life. Well, Paul gives a moral inventory in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, and he's referring there to the dogs, the dogs who were trying to give you the philosophy of not being identified with Jesus. If I, uh, I have reason for confidence, if anybody else thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. I was blameless. Paul's just given us a moral inventory. Let, let me just spell this out so you understand what he's saying. Circumcised on the eighth day. There were lots of people in Philippi who were converts to Judaism, and they had been circumcised as adults. And Paul is saying, guys, I was born into it. I followed the law to the T, circumcised on the eighth day. If anybody has reason for a good resume, it's me. Then he says he was from the tribe of Benjamin. You know, Benjamin was an amazing member of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was the younger brother of the two sons born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And he had, a rep he had a, kind of a reputation of being like, you know, the special forces of the, of the, of the 12 tribes. I mean, these were like the Green Berets. They were like the Navy Seals. They were like the Delta Force. The tribe of Benjamin was, they were heroic warriors. And I will tell you that um, King Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, so a famous leader comes from that tribe. And Jerusalem and the temple stood within Benjamin's territory. So Paul's saying, not, not only was I circumcised on the eighth day, I'm from like the best tribe of Israel. And he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, saying that I, I was immersed in Hebrew culture from the very beginning. These, these dogs out there who want to get you to go back into religion, man, I'm, I, I've been a Hebrew from the very beginning, Hebrew of, 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 of Hebrews. You know, uh, most people spoke four languages back then, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Latin. Paul was immersed in the Hebrew culture. And then he says, um, I'll show you, as of the law, I was a Pharisee. Uh, relative to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. You might be thinking at this point, okay, if you're a persecutor, maybe you're just in it for the uh, politics. You just wanted the power. Paul says, no, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He's not saying he was sinless. He was saying, if ever I sinned, I, I did everything that the law required. So you, you look at this inventory up here. And if you, could, if you were living back in the, in the first century and you were on LinkedIn in the first century. I know, I know, impossible, I know. But go with me on this. You could get on his LinkedIn page 
and you could see what Paul wrote down, you'd think, wow, super impressed. This guy has the most amazing resume of anybody. If you wanted to craft an identity apart from God, you couldn't get any better than the Apostle Paul. Paul had the religion thing down better than anybody, anybody else. So, let me ask you, what, what would you include on your resume if you wanted to find an identity apart from God? Go with me on this. I mean, I mean if, you, if, you want to, if you want to craft an identity apart from God, what would you put on your resume? So I'll tell you what some people put down. Some people have religious resumes. And, and they, they've been on a lot of different mission trips. They have been on committees in a lot of different churches. And they can craft an identity apart from God through religious activity. A lot of people do that. Other people can, can have um, a resume that is primarily athletic. Uh, they can say, I lowered my golf score by 20 points, my handicap by 20 points. I can bench press so many pounds. I can do so many pull-ups. I've hiked Kilimanjaro. I've hiked Everest. I'm awesome. I'm an athlete. A lot of people will identify with athletics as their, their identity apart from God. These things aren't bad things, but you can craft an identity apart from God through whatever resume you put down. Others want to have an, athlete, want to have an academic resume. Let me tell you how this worked with me. Uh, when I got one academic journal article published, I said, why not two? And then when I got two published, I thought, why not, why not six? When I got six published, I thought, why not, why not 12? And I had to confront myself. There's nothing wrong with academic writing. I had to confront myself and say, what are you doing? Why, why has this thing become an obsession to you? Is there a sense in which you're trying to craft an identity apart from God? Some people um, will have trophies and toys on the resume. You know, a beautiful house with an immaculate landscaping, with the perfect car in the garage, and the perfect dog in the house, and the perfect boat in the backyard, and the perfect lake house on the perfect lake. And it becomes a way of crafting an identity apart from God. Nothing wrong with having those things at all. But God knows your heart. And it's very easy to put together a resume so that you say, you know what? If God doesn't come through for me, I can come over here. And I know I've got this. It's crafting an identity apart from God. Some have career resumes. Um, how do you know when you have a problem at the, at, the, at the level of your identity? It's where you build high levels of confidence in the flesh so that you don't really have to depend upon God. People who are radically dependent upon God may have many of these things, but they put these things as radically second to their identity that, which they, they have in Christ. And the reason why is because, let's face it, houses can burn, bank accounts can be hacked, a fit body can get cancer, a wonderfully unified family can endure the tragedy of sudden death. 
All these things we place our identity in can fail. Guess who doesn't fail? Who doesn't fail is Jesus, the rock, the anchor. So here's what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is that you write out an inventory. I just gave you about six different categories of things that we could tend to trust in. I'm suggesting that you write out an inventory. And you ask the question, in what area do I tend to craft an identity because I don't really trust God? Where do I do that? Because believe me, there are, there are the quote-unquote dogs out there that will swerve you into a place of identifying with something else other than Christ. So you ask that question. Where do I, where do, I do that? Make a written inventory. So, and, and some of your inventory, you will include things that are immoral and unethical. And if you do that, I would suggest getting, getting help soon in the body of Christ. One of the things I hope we specialize here at Grace is helping people overcome addictions and habits that are immoral and unethical. Some of you will put down things on your inventory that are very moral and very ethical, and yet you are still depending on somebody other than Christ for your identity. If that's you, find an accountability partner. Get involved in a discipleship relationship. Find somebody who could be a coach. Don't let a counterfeit identity take root, okay? So now Paul moves to the next phase. You know, first we feel the weight of this decision to identify with Jesus in practice. Then we take the inventory to say, where, where am I not identifying with Jesus in practice? And now we flip the switch. We act in accord with our identity in Christ. So here's what he says at the close of this section of verses. But whatever gain I had, I count this gain as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. How many times is the word loss referred to in those two verses? Three times. Loss, 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 rubbish. Now, I, I love it that he does it. He says, look out, look out, look out warning us at the beginning of this passage about what the dogs want to do, move us away from Christ. Now what he says as to his old identity, loss, 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 not just loss, I count it as rubbish. This word rubbish is a word that I probably shouldn't say in church. This word rubbish refers to excrement. It refers to manure and dung. It's the S word. He's meaning to shock us and the Philippians. So I won't say it, but I mean, that's, that's, what, it, that's what he means. I, I count this as the most disgusting pile of excrement you can imagine. I don't place any of my identity in these things that I used to believe in in the past. Notice that he says that his goal is that he might gain Christ. I count this as rubbish, and I embrace Christ because I, I want to gain him. Now, he's not saying, okay, I want to come to Christ, or I want to be saved, or I want to go to church and be accepted. He's not saying those things. What he's talking about is experiencing Christ. 
I count this over here as rubbish. I want to experience Jesus. Look at it this way. Supposing on my wedding day, I walk down the aisle with my new bride, and I say to myself, check that off my list. Won her heart. She's mine now. All through the honeymoon, I'm saying, hey, I've checked this off my list. I'm going to start working on my business. What if I'd done that? Would I have won my wife's heart? Would I experience connection with my wife? No way. No way. If I'm going to gain Cindy, I'm already married to her, okay? I'm already married to her. But if I'm going to gain Cindy in terms of gaining her heart, I better be listening to her. I better be dating her. I better be serving her. I better be loving her. I better be watching out for her needs. I better be kind to her. I better be considerate and gracious. I better be Christ to her. And if I do that, I gain the heart of the person that I am married to. Well, the same thing is true in your relationship with Jesus. If, if I'm over here fiddling with my old identity, am I going to encounter Jesus? No. No. But, but if, if I'm saying, look, this thing is part of the, part of the past. It's, it's, I'm, I don't derive my identity here. I derive my identity over here. Am I going to gain Jesus? Yes, I'm going to encounter him in practice, in real life. Moment by moment, 24-7. So um, notice that Paul anticipates the things that will come when he does gain Christ. And I, I love it. You know, he's, he's kind of thinking, okay, okay, so there's benefits to my old identity, right? There's some benefits to that. But what are the benefits of my new identity? Well, the benefits are pretty cool. He says, he talks about the surpassing worth the surpassing value. Surpassing worth up there. See those two words, surpassing worth. It's a compound word in the original language that means super worth, abundant worth, the best worth, the best of the best. He wants the best of the best. He wants to experience the best of Christ. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Two cars. Both will get you to the quick trip to buy coffee, take you to Starbucks to get a latte. Mercedes Maybach costs $195,000. The Chrysler 200, ah, you might be able to get it for 20 grand. Both will get you to where you want to go. Paul is saying, I want the Mercedes. I want the best of Jesus. Here are two rings that could work for an engagement. Ritani, three Carrot ring, $70,000 at Zales. Target, get your cubic zirconia for $11.95. Both look reasonably pretty on your ring finger. Paul is saying, I want the best of the best. I want to encounter the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. My, my, my Lord. And knowing Jesus means encountering him moment by moment, experiencing the best of Christ. Now he goes into another, another uh, motivation, which is the reverse motivation, which is letting go of his counterfeit identity. He says, I suffer loss. I count everything as loss. I count it as rubbish. How do you count your former identity as rubbish? 
Well, let, let, me, let, me, let me give you some ideas about how this works in practice. Small businessman says, I, I could pursue this my old way, but you know what? I'm going to actively dedicate my business to Jesus. In practice, I'm going to do this. A corporate executive dedicates his leadership to Jesus. I, I could think about my corporate position in a far different way, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm going to dedicate my position in my company to Christ, and I'm going to act out of the integrity that Jesus would, would give me here. A scholar dedicates a study to Jesus. He or she could say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to get all the perks I can academically. No, nope, I'm going to dedicate my study to Jesus. I'm going to allow him to lead me to the place where I need to go. A doctor dedicates his surgical practice to Jesus. A doctor dedicates his clinical practice to Jesus. Uh, an athlete dedicates his body to Jesus. A mom, even though totally invested in her kids, dedicates them to the Lord so that the Lord is radically first and her kids are second. So the idea about, about considering and counting things as loss is that you may still be involved in those things from which you could derive your identity. But what you're saying is, I am, I am counting this as loss so that my relationship with Jesus can be radically first. Now, I love it that Paul did that because most of us live in two worlds. We live in the world of our identity in the flesh here and the world of our relationship with Jesus. And we, we have to make the choice to identify with Jesus in practice because it's so easy to do the other. I want to introduce you to this couple here. Um, Wynn Couchman, who is the woman on the right, was my high school Bible study leader. I've, I've shown you her picture before. Wynn Couchman, she's in her 90s and this, when this picture is taken. She recently died. But I heard a story after she died. And the story was that before I was involved in this Bible study, that uh, <clears throat> the story was that about 100 kids, 120 kids, packed into their 1,800-square-foot home in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin in the wintertime. And the more kids came, the more they struggled with finding the room. So at one point, Bob Couchman says, all right, the first 12 people who were here move all the furniture out into the front yard. So when the kids came, they saw all the living room furniture, every piece of it out in the front yard. Yes, in the snow, in the snow. 120 kids packed into their house. I was, I was one of them. I was dramatically impacted by the ministry of this couple, primarily Wynn Couchman, who was one of the best Bible teachers I'd, I just had ever encountered. Why was a mother of four willing to move all of her furniture out into the snow? Why was she willing to do that? Why? Because her identity was, was firmly rooted in who she was in Christ. And when God blessed them with 120 kids in their home, they were willing to radically identify with God's movement in their life and radically de-emphasize their furniture. 
when I, when I was part of that movement in Milwaukee, it was the real deal. And I love being part of that. They taught me what it was like to identify with Jesus in practice. When Bob Couchman retired with, uh, with uh, the Briggs & Stratton Company as an engineer, they sent out support letters uh, to go out of the mission field. And they got so many people giving them money. They said, we, we don't need this money. They gave half of it back to the people that they had ministered to as high school kids who were also missionaries. An amazing story. But here's the deal. They identified in practice with the risen Christ. That's what we need to do. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father in heaven, we bow before you and just say thank you for allowing us to identify with your son. What a privilege. We love you and thank you that we can walk in his transforming presence, even today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday afternoon. Our prayer team's up here. They'd love to pray for you about anything that's going on in your life.